here with Bishop Clark Lowenfield, who serves as our bishop, the, the bishop for the Anglican Diocese of the Western Gulf Coast. Bishop Clark, thank you for joining us. Oh, Drew, it's a great honor to be with you, a great joy to be with you. Well, to begin, uh, if you could just tell us, tell us what it means to be a bishop. Oh, wow. Well, I oftentimes describe it as tongue-in-cheek, uh, my great demotion because I think I think the the best ministry in the church is pastoring a church uh, in a local setting uh, and and of course a bishop doesn't get to do that a bishop gets to pastor the pastors which is vitally important very worthwhile uh, obviously not the same as having a congregation now granted all bishops have different sort of views and or even styles and or even values of living out being a bishop, but mine particularly are being pastor to the pastors. Makes sense that in order for the pastors to do what they need to do in the most important job, which is on the front lines, that they need pastoring, their families need pastoring, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, there are a lot of other responsibilities, both administratively and and in our polity, lots of things that a bishop has to do to oversee a number of aspects of the development of a healthy, what we call a family, the diocese. In our case, the diocese going all the way from New Orleans down to, to the Mexican border. But my other tendency in my own ministry is, besides pastoring, also training, leading, forming leaders and, and, and clergy especially, uh, forming them in particularly their leadership gifts, uh, particularly in pastoral care uh, themselves. A bishop is the liturgical chief officer of the diocese, so the bishop has to oversee all the liturgy done in all the parishes as well. But in my case, I mostly just am a resource for, for all of the clergy because in the diocese, at least in my case, I probably have the most experience with liturgical development with maturing liturgy in a parish. Uh, and so I just come alongside clergy and help them do that. That's all sort of the main things that I do. There's a lot of fine print, just like in any ministry or any good job, there's a lot of fine print that I end up having to do. Uh, but those are the main things that I love doing and, and do do uh, day in and day out. So you were born and raised Roman Catholic, but you were ordained in the Episcopal Church. I know the, the past couple decades have been quite a journey for you. Um, I'd love it if you could tell us more about that. Sure, absolutely. I, I was uh, baptized and, and raised in, in the Roman Catholic Church. My family, my paternal family particularly, was strongly Roman Catholic. Um, you know, one of those families that my grandmother uh, went to church every day. And so uh, they were strongly Roman Catholic. And I actually came to the Lord in the Roman Catholic Church in what was known as the charismatic renewal of the 1970s and the great Jesus movement of the 1970s, charismatic renewal, swept through my hometown of El Paso, Texas, affecting not only Roman Catholic churches, but Methodist churches, Episcopal churches, Lutheran churches throughout El Paso. The Holy Spirit, in a very, very powerful way, just came sweeping through El Paso. And in that, when I was only a teenager, uh, I came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in my life. 
Now that set me on a on a path where, as I went off to college, and I went off to college in New England to an extremely liberal undergraduate school that that faith was rarely to be able to discuss in 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 class. But but because I had come to such a faith, I knew I had to serve in the local church. So I actually became the youth pastor to the local Roman Catholic Church. I led I led a very eclectic and strange life where I was both the youth pastor of the local Roman Catholic Church and I was also president of the fraternity and so that sort of dual experience was a very interesting thing for a Christian and especially a young Christian to be living out. But as I continued through college I felt a call to full-time ministry. Now you and I know that there's a call to full-time ministry and then there's a call to the priesthood especially in the Roman Catholic Church where celibacy is expected. So I had to really wrestle with, am I called to celibacy and ministry? By the end of college, I had decided I was, that I was called actually to the priesthood, which included celibacy. My Roman Catholic bishop back in El Paso, who had come to the Lord, I believe, during that great charismatic renewal uh, a few years earlier, I believe he had actually come to the Lord during that time, and was one of the most faithful men of prayer I have ever met in my life. He decided that he wanted to take me on retreat to talk about what I considered was my calling at the time to the priesthood. And in a nutshell, Drew, he told me, he said, Clark, I really do believe you're called to ministry, but I don't think it's in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, for those who are not brought up in the Roman Catholic Church, that's unheard of for a bishop to say. Uh, You just don't ever say that in the Roman Catholic Church. But once again, he was one of the most prayerful men I've ever known. And so I at least listened, though at first I didn't accept it because when you're brought up in that church, and to be honest with you, it's not that church alone when you're brought up a Baptist or other other churches that really believe that they they are the true church, uh, it's always an adjustment when somebody says that you might not be being called to ministry in that church. So it was an adjustment. But he went on to describe why he thought I was probably not called to ministry in the Roman Catholic Church. He said, Clark, you have an obsession, a literal obsession between the balance of the Holy Scriptures, of those things that are sacred, like the sacraments and the sacred teachings of the church, and the Holy Spirit. He said, "He said it is not acceptable to you to consider those segmented off or siloed off into separate things. You actually have an obsession to have a balance of those things. And he went on to describe that though he wished the Roman Catholic Church had that same kind of balance, that I was probably going to be happier in ministry in either the Anglican Church or in the Orthodox Church, because both of those strive for a more of a balance between those three uh, than the, at least historically the Roman Catholic Church. I actually believe now 40 years later that the Roman Catholic Church in at least in the United States, is actually finding more of that balance. But at the time, 40 years ago, uh, they it was not there. So I began a journey that he set me on to find out what it meant. And I didn't even know what Anglicans were. In the United States, no one ever discussed Anglicans. It was all Episcopalians at the time. So I didn't even know what an Anglican was. I knew my uncle had become an Episcopalian because of his divorce, which Roman Catholics always thought, well, yeah, if you can't really 
follow the rules in the Roman Church, then you're going to go to the Episcopal Church because it's sort of what we used to teasingly refer to as Catholic light. But as I discovered more and more what Bishop Flores was telling me was I did have this obsession. And that's what drove me into Anglicanism was the search for, for the balance between the scriptures, first and foremost, sola scriptura, first and foremost, the sacred things of the church, the sacraments and the, and the sacred teachings of the church, and the Holy Spirit. And to this day, now 40-something years later, it's still a driving passion of my life. Can you tell us more about the, the transition from the Episcopal Church to the Anglican Church in North America? Sure. How, how was that process for you? Sure. Well, for me personally, the Episcopal Church, when I was ordained into it in 1985, um, was already beginning to show signs of, of revisionist theology, especially uh, creeping into the seminaries. And even my own seminary, which had been a, a great historically traditional seminary, had already begun to sort of lose its way. But being a young and probably very arrogant, no, definitely very arrogant uh, young clergyman, I was absolutely determined and convinced that I, along with others, could change what seemed to be a slippery slope that was occurring theologically, and to be honest with you, even ecclesiologically. So I stepped into it and, and focused on just simply developing and, and building great churches that would bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ and would be a model for the other churches as to how to remain on mission, not get caught up in various uh, political or revisionist theology that was deteriorating around us. But at one point, my own bishop actually began to vote for things that were not in any way, shape, or form supported by the scriptures. In fact, they were things that clearly proved and did in the end prove to lead to where the Episcopal Church ended up, which was basically rejecting the authority of scripture. This was 1999, so, so still a while ago. I began to ask him why he did that. And I, at the time, had actually, I was leading the fastest growing church in his diocese. And so it's a very interesting, you know, when you're, when you're leading the fastest growing church, you easily get appointments with the bishop. That's not the way it should be, but that is certainly the way it was back then. And so I got appointments with him to ask him why. And his answers were not only insufficient, but his answers proved to me that he actually was more committed to the institution of the church than he was to the gospel, and, it, and certainly than he was to the scriptures. And in that moment, I realized that I could not serve under him any longer. And so the transition occurred when I realized that being a faithful man of God who believes that you have to be able to say yes sir to the people above you or else you shouldn't be serving um, I basically said I can't serve under you anymore and I resigned and, and at the time there were no real options but I began to then seek out and, and along with a number of friends that I had made over the years we began to develop 
what was known as the Anglican Mission in the Americas. It was a movement of churches that was being spiritually sponsored by the Archbishop of Rwanda. Shortly after that, a number of other movements of church planting efforts were being done by, by archbishops in, in Uganda, in Kenya, in Tanzania, in South America, in Southeast Asia. But Rwanda was, was the first. And, and so literally along with some friends, we began to develop the Anglican Mission in the Americas, which is now one of the things that led to, in 2009, developing the Anglican Church in North America. What happened was that all of those archbishops that had been sponsoring church planting up until that moment in 2009 said to us, it's now time for you to have your own province, to have your own family in, in America, to support each other, encourage each other, et cetera, et cetera. So being under their authority, we went and developed uh, the Anglican Church in North America and, and joined along with thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of other Anglicans uh, who had been under all of these various archbishops. And we all came together to be the Anglican Church in North America. There's a lot longer pieces to that story, but for the purposes here, that's, that's the gist of it. So you mentioned essentially having two options out of the Roman Catholic Church, mm -hmm. Anglicanism and Orthodoxy. What drew you to Anglicanism? Well, once again, I think that balance certainly uh, was what primarily drew me. But I'm a sacramental Christian, uh, and so therefore, though I had many friends, and I have had a ministry for literally you know, more than 40 years now of of a lot of kingdom relationships, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of relationships in other denominations. I spent I spent the first half of my ministry, the first twenty years of my ministry, going to every important conference around the country, and most of those were in large non-denominational churches. Most of those were in large uh, uh, movements of God that that actually had nothing to do with either the Episcopal Church, which, which I was in at the time, or in most of what I knew, but they, but, but they seemed to be movements of God. But even as I did those kind of experiences, I, I knew I was a sacramental Christian. So primarily the reality that, that the sacraments, that incarnated experience that we have in the sacraments, is an important part of my own spirituality. I acknowledge that in more Protestant traditions, it's it's not as important. I'm not. There's no judgment in that. It's just, it, but that just wasn't me. Um, and so, re, re, recognizing that a strong sacramental attraction, along with a deep, deep commitment to the Scriptures, as not only authoritative. Uh, but the hope of the world, okay, and Jesus th through, through the scriptures, the hope of the world, uh, um, and then the Holy Spirit, that's really still what attracted me to, to Anglicanism. But I couldn't, I could have found two of those in any number of places, but I couldn't find all three. Right. Well, th this may be, this may elicit a similar answer, but what does it mean to you to be Anglican? Well, it certainly could elicit the similar answer, but for me, in the 21st century, 
it means to be a part of a movement that I actually believe began with Augustine and with Gregory sending Augustine for, for on a mission, on a missional journey to, to Britain, to the pagans, because Britain was considered absolutely, totally pagan. Think, think of some, some particularly pagan area of the world right now, and you're sending missionaries to them to basically say, here's the gospel. Well, that's what Britain was. And so I am very attracted to the idea that though, yes, we're a church, we're a denomination, a, you know, we're all those things, we're also a movement in a way that I think is maybe not unique, but it, it still has a great attraction to the reality that then from Britain, that movement continued to go out through all the world. Now, with 40 different provinces around the world, 85 million Anglicans around the world, you could certainly say, well, that was just, that was just Britain's colonialism going around the world. No, I think it was God leveraging Britain's colonialism in a movement he desired to, to take the gospel and the balance of those three things around the world. So one of the key things it means for me is being part of an ongoing movement, even though over the last 500 plus years there have been times that we've not as effectively appreciated or acknowledged this movement we're part of. I, I love being part of a movement more than I do a church. I love being part of a movement more than I do a denomination. We're all those things, but I really do believe that we're a movement. And in the 21st century, I believe that we're a significant part of what I believe is, is another Reformation occurring. That we had a Reformation in the, in the 16th century, then depending on one's view of history, I believe we perhaps had another Reformation in 1054 with the Orthodox of the East and West split, well, I believe we're having an, yet another Reformation in the 21st century that by God's grace and certainly with great res responsibility, Anglicans around the world, once again, 85 million of us, 85% of those 85 million of us are biblically Orthodox and, and sharing the gospel around the world that we have a chance to be part of this Reformation. And granted, we, we as an original product of the Church of England, we have a certain amount of investment in the 16th century Reformation, so we know what Reformation tastes like. We know what Reformation feels like. We know what Reformation, what God does when he comes and reforms his people back to his ways, back to his design, uh, which is found in his word. Um, and I think... It's very, it's very, I love being part of what I believe is, is a his, history-making uh, reformation uh, in the 21st century. I, I remember the first time you mentioned to me believing that we're in, in the midst of a reformation, mm -hmm. and it stuck with me for, for several months. Um, you know, I've been, I've been in full-time ministry for over 12 years, and I've heard all sorts of people talk about this cultural moment as a crisis mm. for the church mm. um, but you were the first person I heard call it a reformation mm. um, and so I, I that stuck with me because I really appreciated the fact that you you see the crisis elements but there's a big there's a big difference between a crisis and a reformation mm -hmm. um, a reformation means that we have a positive vision mm -hmm. 
or how to move forward. And, and I really appreciated that. Um, speaking of that, what excites you about the future of the Anglican Communion? Well, that's very fresh in my heart and mind because I think right now, especially in sort of this time moment where just in these last few months, as I said, 85% of the Anglicans around the world are now in a very organized way coming together to be in mission and on mission together. There's an organization called the Global Anglican Fellowship Conference, which I've been part of now for many, many years, and it's, it's Anglicans around the world, uh, bishops around the world, archbishops around the world, and then there's a Global South organization, and for the of, of, of bishops and archbishops and for the first time in the last uh, 20 years those two groups though some of them overlap right now they are actually coming together not to be schismatic within the Anglican Communion though some will view it as schismatic but to simply move on and be the church you know Reformation for instance even in the 16th century at its purest form no matter where it was going on, Germany, Switzerland, England, Scotland, wherever it was going on, if we look at the common denominators between all of those aspects of, of Reformation, in each case, it was the church continuing on to be the church, reformed back to God's design, reformed back to his word, and continuing. Now, the institutional church, for instance, 16th century, Sure, Rome very much loved calling us schismatics, okay? Because it, it to call somebody a schismatic, perhaps it, it, it distracts people from the reality that it's simply faithful people moving on, no matter what remnant that is or large group that is, doesn't matter. It's God's people, which God's people have always had to do, is when, God, when, when, when certain elements of God's people don't follow his ways, then some element, like I said, either a remnant or a large group, has to move on and be his people. And be and so that's that's hugely exciting for me right now because to be honest with you, been doing this now for so many years, I, I didn't necessarily expect in my lifetime to see eighty five percent of the Anglicans around the world moving in the same direction. And I think we are very close to that happening right now. And so it's very exciting for me. That's wonderful. Yeah, well, Bishop Clark, thank you for joining us. Drew, good to be with you and so thankful for your ministry.